That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is Totally 80s. The podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host... Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome back to another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. So we are continuing our journey from pavement to penthouse, as it were, with part two of our epic deep dive discussion into Great Britain's great synthesizer revolution of the 1980s. Back again with us is one of the absolute architects of that sound, a British musician, composer, arranger, record producer, and music programmer, who a lot of you will best know as a founding member of both the Human League and Heaven 17. He also hosts his own podcast that I recommend for even further listening called Electronically Yours. I just couldn't let him go, so I'm thrilled to welcome back to Totally 80s, Martin Ware. And also joining me is the man who literally wrote the book on the subject, the author of Listening to the Music the Machines Make, Inventing Electronic Pop 1978 to 1983, which tells this great story of a single generation of visionaries that basically created this golden age of British music and made some of the most iconic and influential records in all of pop history. Welcome back to the show, Richard Evans. So guys, when we last left off, we were really talking about this era, basically the late 70s to the early 80s, as really being just a genuine period of reinvention. A perfect example, of course, Martin would be you and Ian reinventing yourself as Heaven 17. But there are other examples in the book. As we've already discussed, Gary Newman reinventing himself as a synth pop solo star joy division becoming new order. I mean, that's one of the biggest reinventions and comebacks from tragedy in music history. Pete Shelley, Buzzcocks are one of my favorite bands. So time out like someone from the old guard of punk doing homo sapien. I mentioned already Japan who kind of started off as kind of New York dollsy and trashy and glammy and, and pen up and, and liked by young girls becoming, you know, these kind of sophisticates of synth. When we're talking about bands that had two different eras, uh, probably a lot of, you know, I mentioned Midjur and everything he's done. Probably a lot of people in America do not know the John Fox era at all. That was not on MTV. The era with Midge with, you know, Vienna and especially Reap the Wild Wind got a lot of MTV play here in the early days, but I don't think the John Fox era ever did. I never even really thought of Simple Minds as a synth band because by the time they got big here in America, of course, with the Breakfast Club song being the biggest one, they were much more guitar based. But if people read your book, Richard, they'll see that that's definitely how Simple Minds started. So they kind of reverse it. And then this isn't, I don't even think in your book, but my introduction to The Cure was this very brief Japanese Whispers era they had as a synth duo and it was just Robert and Lowell and they had Let's Go to Bed on the Walk. So for a moment, they even reinvented themselves as that. So like, 
it just seems like it was an accelerated time of change. You know, I've sort of encapsulated some specific examples here, but can you guys speak to, this is all in five years. Yeah, it was extraordinary. And it's like everything was moving so fast. There was like a sort of a spirit of competition happening between the bands all the time. And everything was sort of escalating all the time. So it's like, I think a lot, a lot of this was to do with technology. So if one band had a new thing, a new toy, that made a new noise and a new sound, then everyone kind of wanted that. But then they wanted something else as well on top of that. So it sort of everything became, you know, very, very competitive and, and sort of ongoing. And I think because of that sort of speed of acceleration, some people just very, very deliberately reinvented themselves to move away from that. Mm. Some people sort of felt that that whole electronic starting point for them wasn't really something they wanted to stick with. So people like, as you say, Simple Minds, they moved away from that. Spandau Ballet very quickly moved away from that, although they, they, their initial records were, were very electronic sound. Yeah. By the time they were massive here with True, they really didn't sound like those first two records at all. Entirely different bands, yeah, and and like you say, it's like Ultravox, you know, dividing into those into those two sort of different generations. And I think that um, Martin will probably agree with this. I think that even over here, the, the man in the street would struggle to identify the pre mature Ultravox. You know, oh yeah, it was very underground, wasn't it? It was very yeah, yeah. John Potts was a bit earlier. He was really out there as a as a pioneer. And another person who never gets mentioned, I don't know if it's in your book at all, actually, I can't remember, but Peter Gabriel was a big influence on us. And his solo records were using lots of very interesting new techniques. And I remember talking to somebody who worked with him, one of his keyboard players, Larry Fast worked with him, that's right. He was saying that they often had the first synthesizers, you know, that mm. came into the country. And he had the first one of the first fair lights. I think the first fair light in the UK it was the first one. Yeah, wow. yeah. So is that in your book? It is. I bet there's there's some stuff about the fair light, but not so much about the influence of Peter Gabriel. Yeah, big influence for us, you know. Yeah. Very cool. He, he was very much part of my sort of research process, but the book is already so massive that quite a lot of people actually had to sort of be trimmed out. And another band that you you mentioned, Lindsay, was The Cure, who had a very interesting sort of, you know, electronic chapter and are actually my, probably my favourite band of all time. Mine too. I've done a whole Totally 80s podcast <laughs> just about The Cure, which listeners are welcome to check yeah. out. We were nearly on the same label. Hansa, the label yes. that I, I love the story that are kind of like a post-punk American Idol talent contest was, and Japan won it over The Cure, I believe, or Japan and The Cure won, but the Cure forfeited their prize. Were you almost on Hansa? No, 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 no. No, um, when Fiction Records first mm -hmm. started, yeah. before they had an office, who was the guy? Chris Parry, wasn't it? Parry, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just when we were deciding which label to get signed up to with the Human League, he said, come to my office, and he had no furniture in it. It was just a carpet. Then <laughs> you have a desk. And he said, oh, you can sit on the floor. Listen to it. We had a hi-fi system, so... He said, listen to this. This is our first signing. And he put um, Killing an Arab on. And I'm going, what the bleep <laughs> is this? This has got nothing to do with what we're about. So he's a very nice guy. And, um, of course, the cure went on to be amazing. I mean, but... they were just a trio then that almost kind of seemed to ride from the Buzzcocks or whatever. Yeah. Like, they were not a, 
electronic band at all until really 82 or whatever, when maybe it was a necessity thing, you know, they'd lost, they jettisoned a bunch of members. It was just down to two people and duos, you know, were very big during this era. I've mentioned soft sell a bunch of times. Pet Shop Boys came a little bit later. It was a really big one. Obviously, Vince Clark's Erasure, The Cure for a little bit, Eurythmics, who are in the book, Yazoo, also Vince Clark. You know, there were a lot, like, duos were a big thing then. I don't know if it was because the format of working, like you said earlier, Martin, just like all you need is a synthesizer and a microphone or whatever, Suicide and Sparks would be other earlier examples. Suicide, yeah. Yeah, so did the whole, like... Kind of keeping things small as like a self-contained unit uh, as a duo. Did it lend itself well to this genre, to this format? It's an economic factor, mm. you know. I mean, firstly, at that point, we didn't play live, remember, with them. We did with Humanly, but not with Heaven 17. So we lost a lot of money touring, even with three people on stage. Then we decided to pour our, all our money into videos for Heaven 17. And that kind of worked because we were servicing all the different territories. And working with Steve Barron, who's a you know a god, basically. Yeah. So yeah, it, uh, it's very much an economic thing. Yeah. Well, let's talk. You know, I keep bringing up Vince Clark's name, but like I said, you know, in reinvention, maybe no one reinvented himself more than than even obviously the reinvention of you and Ian as from Human League to Heaven Seventeen is a really big one, and Joy Division to New Order is another really big one, but. Vince Clark struck gold like three times. And, you know, as I want to mention, he wrote the forward to your book, Listen to the Music the Machines Make. So that's a, obviously a really great coup because he wrote the figurative book. But I mean, he could write a book just if you had written a fiction book about a guy who starts Depeche Mode, arguably the biggest commercial band to come out of this whole movement. Especially in America, where they just like here in LA, they just played three nights in a row at the Forum. They are the only band in LA, Depeche Mode, to play the Hollywood Bowl four nights in a row and sell out all four nights. Like they're massive here, especially if you grew up in LA with K Rock. But he starts Depeche Mode. They have this really great start. Then he's like, peace out. He leaves them. They go on with Martin Gore as the songwriting helm to be even bigger. A lot of people would probably regret that, you know, but just like you, Martin, don't regret leaving Human League. He then forms Yazoo or Yaz, as they were known here in America. Also massive. I did actually not realize until I was I read this in your book, Richard, that that band was together for 15 months. They made such a mark. And of course, Alison Moyer went on to be a huge solo star as well. But like they had songs like Don't Go like Alison Moyer's laugh is like the most sampled thing of all time. So he made a mark with that. Then he's like, peace out, ends that, rip it up and start again. And he did the assembly for a while, another duo. But then, I mean, this one stuck. Erasure is a band that is still massive now, put out, has still doing really good music. They put out some music in the last few years I really enjoyed. But like, this is a guy that did not sit still. I mean, to strike gold with three really important bands you know that are all in the book i mean i'll let you guys you know him i assume so like i'll let you speak about his influence in three different ways with three different really important bands and his mindset of with the first two just not sticking it out like being wanting to look to the next thing well you start richard yeah okay so um 
I think that this, that to, to start with, Vince is an excellent example of the thing that you were talking about, about the duo. And when he started Depeche, he started to realise that he wasn't really interested in the whole pop star life. He wasn't that bothered about the playing live, but he did love all the studio work. And what he didn't like so much was the sort of the, the, the politics and the sort of the managing and the logistics. And he realised quite early on, and probably one of the first to realise this, that he actually didn't need a band around him to do the things that he wanted to do. And so while he didn't necessarily have animosity for the rest of Depeche, he was quite keen to sort of, you know, pursue this different path. And he's a sensible and thoughtful sort of a guy. And he wouldn't have done this, you know, on the spur of the moment. And in his head, he knew that even if his next project didn't work out, then he could probably still make a living out of doing commercials and jingles. Uh, and he, he signed up with an agency and started doing this. And, and it's like, this, this actually happened. But, you know, like you say, he, his next project was was Yazoo. And then after that, Erasure. But both of those projects, he went into with his eyes open in a different way to the way he did in Depeche when he, he had no experience or no knowledge. And he kind of finessed what he needed and what he wanted through these two projects and that is the sort of the reason that Erasure have sort of done so well and for so long. Music from not so sunny England and darker music you know goth whatever you all call it goth post-punk synthwave dark wave death rock whatever always has had such an audience here that's something I'd love. Do you guys have any theories as to why all this music Besides the fact that K-Rock got on board, it has to go maybe a little bit deeper than that, why this music has always been so popular on the West Coast. There's a kind of mystique in the same way that British people look at America and go, there's a certain kind of authenticity to do with kind of blues and R&B-influenced music in America. I think a lot of fans in the US look to Europe to give a bit more of an edgy take on things. Hmm. So it's interesting because there are a few American bands who have tried to do a similar thing, but the, what they're copying is the kind of illusion of it rather than understanding what the real core of it is. Do you agree with that, Richard? I do. That's a really good way of putting it, actually. And I think that sort of underpins quite a lot of the things we've been talking about, about the sort of the acceleration of the way music has developed between the sort of early experimentation of 1978 and that sort of homogenous electronic sound of 1983. Uh, I think that all, all all sort of underpins exactly that. Well, I need to know what these American bands were that you feel were sort of directly aping this aesthetic. That's a good question. I can't really name them. I just remember, I, I, I more remember Will Ferrell being on Saturday Night Live and doing his version of a, of a British electronic group, <laughs> which made me laugh so much because it was quite accurate. And when he was playing the devil, that's right, he was playing the devil, and he was doing something that sounded a bit like uh, Men Without Hats. Or I don't know, anyway. Was that was that the that the Garth Brooks sketch? Was yeah, it been, yeah, it's really <laughs> funny. Anyway, but there was that kind of like, all we have to do is have big padded shoulders and kind of, have extreme makeup on and we're English, you know, and it's not, that's not really the point, you know. I, no, I will say there's one American band that I completely thought was British at the time that I will say did it, did it well. 
and that's a flock of seagulls. I think they did a really good they're job. Not American. They're not American. Are they not? They're from, they're from Liverpool. But they live in Florida, that's why. Okay, yeah, yeah, well, there you go. I just made my point. No Americans did it as well as the British. My bad. For some reason, I had this mindset that they were American because I know that Mike Score lives in Florida, so I... Yeah, Somehow. no, they live in America. Yeah, yeah, he lives in America. Yeah. Well, there, I just made your, I just made your point that the British did a better. <laughs> the, the one, the one American band. I was about to be like, well, what about Flock of Seagulls? They're a British, so my bad. Moving on to, we were talking a little, a lot, a bit about Vince Clark. Yeah, and I, one thing that I thought was interesting to read about in your book, Richard, was how OMD's electricity was a big influence on him when he was kind of getting the scene because. OMD were actually massive in America. They had a lot of big hits, obviously. They had a really big hit. You know, I mentioned how Simple Minds had a big hit. But in the Breakfast Club, they they had a big hit from Pretty in Pink. John Hughes actually was a big champion of a lot of this music. I feel like they got a lot of commercial acclaim and success. But I don't think, except maybe in recent years, people have realized how important orchestral maneuvers in the dark actually were i think they get a little bit of short trip critically do you guys agree with that martin <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm friends with them both so i'm a little bit biased but um, <laughs> do you know what there's a really weird dichotomy or, or kind of tension between the two main pillars that hold up omd i think one is that they are intellectually quite interesting the lyrics are quite interesting the titles of the album the album covers and all that but then the other side is it's almost like a pop version of suicide or something you know another big duo there you go yeah yeah so you've got this kind of like plinky plonky kind of poppy thing and i I, i've I've said this to andy before so i'm not talking out of school i'm not the biggest fan of andy's voice but it's like it is very kind of attractive to the ear. So, you know, you've got that kind of like, they are very on brand. Do you know what I mean? The way they sound, as soon as you hear one of their tracks on the radio, you know precisely who it was. Mm-hmm. They've got a very strong palette of sounds, which is their aesthetic. And that that combined with the, the kind of artistic way they present themselves in their artwork, I thought created a really interesting tension. So I think Andy McCluskey and Paul have both got pop hearts and lots of people that I really like. You know, when pop was intelligent, pop was possible and it would be proliferated on the radio stations. That's all fallen apart now. So it's all kind of like, I love this AI thing about, you know, <laughs> Universal trying to shut down all the AI composition bots because they sound exactly like all the stuff that sounds like AI. We're going, how about making some stuff that sounds kind of interesting then? Absolutely. You know, then you can't impersonate it. You, Richard, were talking about with regards to Vince Clark that he realized he didn't have to have a band, although he obviously has helmed several very important bands. So we talked about a lot of bands and we talked about a lot of duos, but there's two people who were sort of self-contained bands, self-contained Frontman who really, I think, put a face, especially in America, especially on MTV, on this genre. Thomas Dolby is, I think, very important, with especially the golden age of wireless. And then someone who actually was a really big pop star here. And fun fact is the first concert I ever got to see without parental supervision. And that's Howard Jones. Those were two really important artists. 
and I want to talk about them in the context of this is a little bit after 1983, but something that changed my life and changed the lives of a lot of people was what I consider to be perhaps unbiased, but what I consider to be the greatest moment in the history of the Grammys. And that is the synthesizer showdown of 1985, which I actually think I'd love to talk about this with you. Cause I think it was very symbolic for people who don't know what it was. It was Thomas Dolby and Howard Jones who sort of represented this new guard of synthesizer players with Stevie Wonder, obviously a god, and Herbie Hancock, who was sort of on the subject of reinvention, had kind of reinvented himself from being this jazz god to putting out a really awesome synth record, Future Shock, which the Rocket video got tons of play on MTV. It was actually one of the first black artists to ever be played on MTV. So the four of them get together in this bank of synthesizers and Thomas Dolby's got the Beethoven wig on and it's the most epic thing my childhood eyes have ever seen. My mind is blown. I asked my mom for a synthesizer, my parents for a synthesizer the next like day for my birthday or whatever. Can we talk about this moment and also about what significantly it meant with the fact that it was multi-generational and multi-genre and I had these two kind of guys who were like solo stars of the genre together. I think this is actually an important moment and I'm always surprised at how many people don't remember it. I'll like show someone the YouTube video and they're like, oh my, like to me, this was a big deal. I have to say that until I started researching the book, I wasn't even aware that it happened. Uh, it was something that had sort of spilled yeah. into the British consciousness, unfortunately. But it is absolutely fantastic. It's so brilliantly over the top and crazy. Yes. And, and I, I don't know if it could have happened over here because I, I think that those that's, that distinct set of artists couldn't really be packaged in the same way. I think that there'll be sort of, you know, more more consideration about, you know, the, the, the way that people pair together. But yeah, it, it is. If you haven't seen it, Martin, it's 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 well worth. Yeah, I I, I think also it was hilarious. Yeah, but I mean, I I respect them all as musicians. I thought their whole concept was weird, though. I mean, was, <laughs> I couldn't imagine that on the Brits, for instance. Or, <laughs> exactly, it wouldn't happen. Although it should. I'd rather watch that. Yeah. Someone needs to recreate it with. I I don't know. I, to me, it, maybe it's just sort of like a core memory for me. I'd like to weird. do it with. Uh, I'd like to do it with maybe us, Apex Twin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to some really avant-garde people and OMD and like the Human League. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> Can we like? Call who I mean, maybe that's not a Grammys thing, but can you like place a call to the Brits or something? Can we yeah. make that happen? I'll make some calls when we finish. Yeah, the... yeah, uh, consider it done. <laughs> well, going back to British television, though, you know, a top of the pops comes up a lot in your book, Richard, and how I mean, I've mentioned how when David Bowie was on top of the pops and Starman 1974, it seems like every person who saw that whether it was Boy George, whether it was guys of Duran Duran, whether it was Mark Allman, they all started bands or or got into music for that. And of course, a lot of the artists that we're talking about today had hits from being on top of the pops. I know that there were probably only about three channels in the UK at that time, and everybody watched Top of the Pops. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting. For people who don't know who what Top of the Pops was, it was kind of like, I guess, the American equivalent would be solid gold out here, and people would come on and perform a song that was on the way up the charts. And usually they'd get a bump even higher up the charts after getting to lip sync on uh, Top of the Pops. But I thought it was really funny. A fun fact in the book was apparently when the first time your version of the Human League went on Top of the Pops, Martin, like 
what you did was so divisive it caused like your song to go down <laughs> on the charts like had that ever that doesn't happen with top of the pops it usually was we must sh- have been very terrible um, we must have been one of the few first appearance acts that actually harmed our chances of having a hit <laughs> what song did you do we did um a cover version of gary glitter's rock and roll Okay. And uh, it was good. I mean, I thought the sure was good. quite good. And we were looking forward to it. You know, the, the sales figures, and it just went, you know, story of my life. How many notches down the chart did it plummet as it was like? It didn't plummet. It just didn't ignite. Okay. Uh, it kind of went down five places. Because normally it was sort of a guarantee if you went on top of the pops, you'd be in the top 20 the next week. What it was, was normally what happens, the big radio station at the time in the UK is the national radio station was Radio 1 and you had to get on their A-list to be a hit mm. and normally if you got on top of the box you got on the A-list for some reason the playlist makers didn't dig the records mm. There's lots to be said for the fact that in Britain, because Britain's such a small country and at, at this time, you know, like, like you said that there was three TV channels so, you know, a show like Top of the Pops would be watched by, you know, regularly in excess of 10 million people. Wow. It was absolutely incredibly important. And that's in a country of maybe 50 million people. So as a sort of, you know, penetration into the market, it was kind of second to none. And Radio One was kind of like the radio equivalent doing the same job. So as fantastic as that was for the artists who got it, for the artists who didn't, you kind of were just like nowhere. You know, it's like if you didn't if you didn't have Radio One, if you didn't have Top of the Pops, then you'd kind of run out of options because mm. there, there wasn't enough media outlets to support any more infrastructure. And I think that happened to Martin in the Human League, but it also happened again to Martin in Heaven Seventeen, yeah. didn't it? Are we seeing a pattern here? <laughs> oh, and with BEF as well. <laughs> I must have the biggest string of almost hits. In history, I think we had about five different singles that got to 41. And he needs to be in the top 40 to get in a chance of either Radio 1 or Top of the Pops. Visually, whether it was Top of the Pops in England, MTV here, as Richard was pointing out, that was such an important thing. And, you know, the visuals for Heaven 17 were on point. You know, the video for Let Me Go in particular and for Penthouse Payment. The band. Steve Barron, very sophisticated, very aspirational, like penthouse to pay, but I know it was tongue in cheek, but there was an aspirational element to it. Your frontman, Glenn, not easy on the eyes, you know, good, good looking, you know. So, like, I'm kind of surprised to hear the fact that, you know, at least. Oh, no, we did have big hits. In, in yeah, the, yeah. But they didn't come till a bit later. It's just, we, it's hard to explain. There were a lot of false starts, I think, is the way I'd put it. I see. But, you know, I often think that. Young artists need to understand this stuff because, you know, that we've all been weaned on the idea of instant success or instant failure, and it just wasn't the case in those days. It, you know, there are many examples of bands that took years to have their first hit and then went on to do very well, you know. I want to talk about the importance of live music. You talked, Martin, about what did you say it was Human League or Heaven yeah. 17 didn't play live? I know, Heaven 17 didn't play live. We did lots of tours with the early Human League. We toured with Iggy Pop and nice. Stranglers and Perubu and mm. you name it. Uh, two tours with the Su- Susan and the Banshees. Nice. But then we lost so much money because you had to buy onto tours. Mm. We became so massively unrecouped 
that we said we can't afford to do that stuff anymore and our strength was in the studio anyway. So this is where the similarity with Vince comes. You know, we right. decided that was our strength. But I'm curious because so many of these bands started off as studio projects or home studio, bedsit studio projects. And there were certain bands, certainly Depeche Mode with a frontman like Dave Gahan, certainly Duran Duran with someone like Simon Le Bon, Erasure with Andy Bell, who's such an amazing performer. And of course, I've mentioned Gary Newman and his car, you know, in Erg, like he obviously always had the the live thing, you know, ready to go. But in general, was it hard for a lot of bands from this movement to translate to not just the, the visual presentation that they could do in music videos on a live stage, but also recreating this music live. Can you talk about that a bit? It didn't seem to be so relevant. I mean, you know, the well-known thing is that with the early Human League, we said, how the hell are we ever going to perform this live? Because hmm. we can't afford to employ, you know, four or five synthesizer players like you would have a band with a bass player and a guitar and a drummer. Right. We just couldn't afford it. It was an economic thing, and it would have looked ridiculous anyway. So we said, look, we just got to be honest and say some of this is pre-recorded. So we had on stage, we had a reel-to-reel tape recorder. And at the start of every early Human League gig, we'd come on, and the first thing we'd do is switch the tape recorder on. <laughs> That's kind of punk rock, actually. That's funny because that probably caused controversy then, oh. but like nowadays, no one bats an eye at anything being on tracks or whatever. Yeah, we got we got attacked in Germany physically. No when way. Could, yeah, oh yeah. We we did this, and one of the audience members started burning a Union Jack. Then they started throwing things, some objects and stuff, and and the security were uh, actually Hell's Angels. And they just disappeared. And then people started storming the stage and were going, we're going to get killed. Oh, And my this stars. was all because we weren't a rock and roll band. I mean, that's kind of punk rock, though. I mean, you know, I've, I've read about early suicide gigs. I've interviewed Martin Rev. And, yeah. like, that's the kind of reaction they got when they were starting. People, yeah, like, yeah. if you can inspire a reaction like that, you're probably doing something right. I think they were, I think Martin because I interviewed him as well, that he was saying they were quite provocative. You know, they would actually wind the audience up deliberately okay. in an effort to go, you know, fuck you. This is us. <laughs> and if you don't like it, you know what you can do. And of course, some people are going to go, okay, we're going to get you. You know, I remember, in fact, going to a gig with Faust, the Krautrock band in Sheffield in 74, um, I think it was. And uh, they came on stage, it's a full house, 2,000 people came on stage and they had a pinball machine, they had a block of concrete and they had a pneumatic drill and the lead singer came on and started drilling the concrete block with a pneumatic drill and the, the drummer, there was a drum kit set up, but the drummer was just playing like pinball while this was going on and the audience were going, get off, bloody rubbish. And all this. And and the guy just started berating the audience in German and actually went into the audience and, and there was fights breaking out and everything. So this was pre-punk. So this stuff is not new. Well, whether it was intentional or not, a lot of the music that you and your peers made 
was divisive. Actually, there are so many quotes, Richard, in listening to the music machines make. You you obviously went through an archive, a treasure trove of a lot of reviews. At what point did both of you, you, Martin, as an artist, and Richard, you as a scholar of this genre, at what point would you say the press started to turn? Because as you mentioned, Richard, by 1983 in Blue Monday, this was the sound of now. All music was incorporating this. But at what point did you start to see this genre and music that was primarily synthesizer-based in general kind of start to get respect? I think it's it was to do with the changing of the guard within the media. So in 1978, when, when Martin had started and OMD had started and the, these bands were very startling and new, the media who were reporting on them were often very, very old school. And so there was a perception that electronic bands with this sort of post-punk, you know, aesthetic, they hadn't paid their dues. Mm. They hadn't spent years on the pub rock circuit, you know, playing shows to two men and a dog. And, you know, they haven't got the calluses on their fingers from practicing the guitar for hundreds and thousands of hours. And so this initial wave of journalism were a little bit, you know, belittling uh, of, of, of the efforts that were being made. And it wasn't really until a new school of journalism started to creep in and there was journalists who, who started to say, actually, I quite, I quite like this. You know, this is, there's, there's, there's something good. And, and there's one journalist in particular, and she was called Betty Page. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and she was she was young and dynamic. And she was a fan of this music. She was a secretary at one of the one of the music papers. And then she sort of became a, a journalist in her own right. And it wasn't really, I think, until she sort of started to trailblaze for these bands that there was suddenly someone within the media who, who got it who understood it, and also the bands then had someone that they could talk to who they felt they weren't going to be crucified by. There was some really, really nasty journalism. I mean, Neil, there was a snarky kind of zeitgeist at the yeah. time. It was almost like, I'm cooler than you, and the, the kind of swathe of the journalistic priesthood would go... Well, I know it's popular, but but is it really as good as you know whatever from the seventies or or you know the real bands? Is it real? Yes. You know, is it real? Yeah. and you know this this like going on about these guys. Admit they're not musicians, and that, we used to be guilty of that because we didn't have any musical training or anything. It's like but the punk bands did that too. They just play guitars. Yeah, but, but, but you've got to bear in mind that the the punk thing was quite short lived. Okay. So it was like once the novelty had worn off, that we got this enormous flowering of creativity, which came in the post-punk period. Mm -hmm. But already punk was outre, you know. I would imagine that even this kind of grumpy old guard press that turned their nose up and questioned if this music was legit or not. Did the producers get respect? Because they were like helping create some really revolutionary sounds yeah i think i think they did i mean trevor one was always respected yeah as someone who's a very respected producer yourself i mentioned at the very top of this conversation you know you produced albums for terence and darby you were instrumental in just a little bit before tina turner's big comeback you kind of laid the groundwork for her with let's yeah. let's stay together like 
from the producer standpoint, do you feel the production got the critical respect for how groundbreaking it was? Uh, do you know what? I think within the industry, yes. General public. Do you know what? It's hard to imagine, but the whole of the music industry was awash with money at that point. <laughs> I, mean, only, I only realise it now. I thought it was always going to be like that, you know, when you just think that's the way it is. Everybody was making money. Yep. 1% on an album. That was a big windfall back then. Everybody, everybody was making money. So producers were getting handsomely rewarded. And I don't think they really cared or, or, you know, actually it was in their interest. Can you imagine having a job where you're doing the stuff you really love, you're getting paid handsomely for it, and you don't have all the problems and the trappings of dealing with fame, you know? Also, like when we talk about iconic record labels, I mentioned Mute, of course, well known for Depeche Mode and a bunch of other amazing, important records. And Daniel Miller from the normal of weather, warm leatherette fame starred that label. But like the whole business model of Factory Records, which put out the early OMD stuff and, of course, quite famously put out Joy Division and New Order stuff. Tony Wilson's whole business model would not have lasted a week now. Um, it would have yeah. been hemorrhaging money left and right. Like, I don't, we don't even have time to go into the fact that, like, I mean, there weren't actual contracts. Like, he would actually just let bands like OMD just go. But that's, I guess, kind of indicative of how, like, those kind of risks could be taken. Well, that, that, was, the money. that was the punk era. And, in fact, I mean, of course, Richard can tell you all about this more than I can. But it's a well-known fact that Eurasia don't have a written contract with Mute still to this day. It's done on trust. Well, it's on the old, what we call the rough trade model, which is essentially splitting 50-50 after costs. This still, as far as I know, may have changed. But when I was working with them, that's what Vince told me. Is that right, Richard? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And as far as the, the deal between Erasure and Mute is, it's a handshake between Vince Andy and Daniel Miller. I believe that for legal reasons, there is now a very basic one-page contract for filing purposes. But basically, yeah, there's, there's nothing more than, than, than the arrangement that Martin just explained. That's explained. why Daniel Miller is the greatest man on earth. <laughs> that's really impressive. That's extremely impressive to go back to the fact that this was a different time. So labels like Mute, labels like Factory Records. Also, Some Bizarre. I didn't know about this whole like Some Bizarre compilation. I knew Some Bizarre from a Soft Cell, but I didn't realize how instrumental that label had been. But do you think the fact that the industry in general was just flush with cash at that time allowed a lot of these labels to take these risks with bands yes. like this Terrible. and these bands would not have gone the chance they did in a different age of course not i mean if you think about it cds were just starting to come onto the market in the early 80s which coincided with mtv coincided with all this stuff so you've got this huge what i call the north sea oil effects you know it's like it's a massive windfall for the record companies they don't know what to do with this cash that is pouring in from a new format. They're just selling the same stuff again. And they're paying the artists half the royalty because it was regarded to be an audiophile format, which under the contract, they reckon is some kind of promotional thing. So they would like triple dipping. <laughs> they were so full of money that they were their biggest problem was how to spend it and not pay tax. Hence, you get 
every mofo was getting signed up. I mean, everybody. You know, my friends, Spiz Energy, who we toured with, they never had a prospect of having a big hit record. They got a big contract out of EMI. Cabaret Voltaire, heavily experimental group, got bought a drum machine, started making something that resembled pop records. They got a big contract as well. It's like, what is going on here? You've got to understand, this will never, ever happen again. It was a unique moment in time at the core of the time that your book is talking about. Richard, do you have any other examples? I was about to ask and Martin kind of answered for me, but like in retrospect, some people might be thinking, what were they thinking? Signings of this era, bands that were just got huge record deals with big labels with really very little chance that they were going to be the next Depeche Mode or Duran Duran. I think it all boils down to the fact that the music industry is a very, very strange and unpredictable business model. It's like the music industry spends money on so many different acts in the expectation that 95% of them or something like that will fail. Mm. And they will make all that money back on the the 5% that actually create some sort of success. And it's like, I don't think you could get away with that as a business model in any other way at all. It's kind of extraordinary to, to look at. But at, at that time, with all that money going around, and it's like it was better to spend it than it was to pay the tax on it. So <laughs> all of a sudden, it's like, you know, like Martin says, you know, everyone was getting signed. Everyone was getting deals in the possibility that they might end up in the unlikely event. You know, it's like if you look at someone like Depeche Mode, it's like when they released Speak and Spell, then no one would have had any expectation that they would become the Depeche Mode of 2023, you know, yeah. with with that illustrious career behind them. But, you know, it's like that works. And that was the foundation of the financial success of Mute, which allowed Daniel to do lots of his more experimental things, which are artistically valid, if not commercially, things that the, the, the mainstream music industry would want to put their money into. You know, bands like Eisenhower Neubauten or Leibach, <laughs> people who are doing sort of strange things of their own. And the fact that, this model allows the maverick people like Steve-O at Some Bizarre, like Daniel at, at Mute, to do these things. You know, it's like to, to finance art, for want of a better word, is absolutely fantastic, I think. Absolutely. So what would you say for people who are learning about this through your book or through this podcast or through Martin's podcast? And, you know, they're kind of newbies to this genre. I mean, it's such a loaded question, but what are like the key touchstone albums or singles that you would say, okay, here's the playlist. How about it? Well, fortunately, there are a set of playlists on Spotify, which are created to accompany the book. Oh, nice. And they are available at Inventing Electronic Pop on Spotify. So there are a, a selection of playlists which, which cover the various sections of the book. So there's like a little sort of representative sample of, of all those eras within the period that I write about from the early experimental and unusual music all the way through to the very highly commercial, highly polished, highly produced music of the end period. From being boiled to Blue Monday, I assume they're both. Boiled, boiled to Blue Monday, exactly. Well, that wraps this up so wonderfully, so full circle. I guess the last question I'll pose before I let you guys go is obviously this music has stood the test of time. But people thought at one time this was going to be a passing fad. 
So what do you think it is about it that causes music to stand the test of time for over 40 years? I remember when Rapper's Delight came out, and uh, I remember saying, that's it? This genre is great, but nobody's ever going to beat this. And look, here we are, mm-hmm. you know, 40 years on, and it's still going. The same is true for that period of music, because I think the craft of songwriting was at the core of it. Pop heart. So really, I think the the electronic element of it puts you in a different headspace because it just feels futuristic or whatever. But actually, at the core of it, all those great songs that we love so much, you could probably play them on guitar or piano and do acoustic versions, and they would still work. And I don't honestly believe you can say that about the equivalent kind of EDM-style stuff that is popular in the charts now. Well, I would say a golden era for electronic music was, of course, what was then sort of called electronica in yeah. the 90s. And the bands that have stood the test of time from that era, like Chemical Brothers, who I just saw play Coachella a week ago, Daft Punk, of course, yeah. Prodigy, yeah. Underworld. They had real songs. They had real exactly. songs. Exactly. It's not that complex. And in <laughs> fact, for the last... Four or five years I've been teaching an MA course in songwriting. So I have to kind of tell students, you know, they have to, they look to me because I've sold a few records, right? And I say to them, just look at the influences that think of your favorite songs. Why do you like them? You know, it's not because it's got the latest drum machine on, it's not because it's got a massive drop, it's not because it, <laughs> you know. It's because there's a memorable hook or multiples of them. And if it's organized in a certain way, it sounds like a song which you can actually sing along to or hum. And it sticks in your mind. And it really isn't much more complex than that. Awesome. Well, Richard, since you wrote 500 plus pages about this subject in your book, I'll let you have the last word. What is it about synth pop music? For me, and writing this book, it was really because it hadn't been done before. And that goes for the book and for synth pop music. It's like it was so startlingly new and startlingly interesting. And I was a fan of it. And I realized that over the years, these bands and these albums and these songs have sort of gained status. And, you know, they, they, they've become part of the fabric of my world and, and of the world of so many different people. And it just seemed extraordinary that no one had actually really written it down. And there was a divergence, uh, at which point I had to make a decision about how I was going to write the book. And originally, my plan was to contact people like Martin and say, let's have a conversation about those days. Then I started to realise that those days are so far behind us that these stories have sort of mutated over time through constant retellings and constant sort of changes. And actually the sort of the new stories that we hear, uh, not always the original story. (laughs) So instead I went back to the original music press of the day and I reported on, you know, the, the way this movement developed kind of in real time at that time. And I think that that was a far more interesting way of approaching it. I'm glad in retrospect that I did it this way around. And I think also because of that, it's made the account a more genuine and honest and authentic account. It feels less airbrushed 
Can I just say it's quite scholarly? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's cool. But not in a way that, you know, isn't easily digestible. I read the book in, in literally about two days and it is 507 pages. It is scholarly. I did learn a lot about it and I actually thought I already knew a lot about this genre. You know, it's one of my favorite eras and genres in music, but I really did learn a lot, but it's, it's scholarly, but in a way that's, you know, not dry. Yeah, I didn't mean that as a, <laughs> I, I meant as a, in terms of its thoroughness and in yes. terms of its intention. It's like a piece of a serious piece of research, you know. It was it was a big big job, yeah, it, it was. But I, I really hope because I knew that I was writing for people who would really care about this stuff, yeah. and it was my my hope was that everyone would find something in it that was new or interesting to them. Yeah, uh, hopefully that is the case. And just just to just to finish off, when I launched the book, Martin very kindly attended the launch event with me. And I gave him a copy of the book, and this was before it was published. And immediately he sat down and he went to the index and looked himself up. <laughs> Actually, while, I, while I've got you here, I have the book right in front of me. Let Thank me God tell he's you. got an index. That's all I <laughs> and, and I kind of hope that, that everyone can do something along those lines. You're in it quite a bit. Pages 124, 280, 286, 364, 365. And the list goes on. You've got quite a bit of ink in this book, Martin, as as well you should. I mean, there's a reason why you're on this podcast, because you were there from, from the very beginning. First of all, I want to thank you for being on the show. I want to thank you, Martin, for all the great music you've made with all your projects. I want to thank you, Richard, for writing this book, which I think as you mentioned was needed it filled a void absolutely in in the library of music journalism so once again the book is called listening to the music the machines make inventing electric pop 1978 to 1983 available where all good books are, are sold or downloaded and check out that spotify playlist as well thank you richard and thank you martin for once again for joining Pleasure. me thank and you. thanks everybody out there for listening to the music uh, this podcast makes that's I didn't word that well but you know what I'm trying to say remember to give totally 80s some love with a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform and I will catch you next time this was totally 80s the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at totally 80s and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform until our next episode Catch you on the flip side.